can't tell you how encouraging it is to see you all walk in each week um, and to just know your hearts are devoted to pursuing God and knowing him and his word. It just blesses me. So thank you for coming. Thanks for showing up. I've been following um, a social researcher lately. I've been following her on TED Talks and um, online and on a few other things. And she spent her whole career studying the idea of human connectedness. The, our ability to connect, to be in friendships, to belong, um, basically our ability to love each other. And it's really interesting because over years and years of research, it's really led her to one truth. Um, we have trouble connecting with each other. We have trouble loving each other, she says, because we don't believe that we're worthy of love and we don't believe that we're worthy of connection. And I thought, oh, how sad. Maybe there's some truth to that. Um, her suggestion her solution is that we just all need a little courage. We need vulnerability. So we'll risk and reach out and love anyway. And that's a great suggestion. But I had another suggestion. I listened to her and I thought, if that's really the root of our problem, we don't think we're worthy of love and relationship and connection. What if instead we ask God to show us? Show us what we're worthy of. Show us if we're able to have these kind of connections. What if we listen to God's heart for us instead? And you know what we'd find out if we listen to God's heart? We saw it in all these stories today. We'd find out God loves us. God values us. God lives to be our Savior so he can live in a relationship with us. God says, I'm making you worthy. And what if... We believed that so much and we embraced it in our heart and we lived from that place and we wouldn't need courage to love other people. Wouldn't that be a beautiful world? I think that's the kingdom of God. I think that's the world God wants us to live in. And I think when we studied these parables today, um, they were such great opportunities for us to look and really see the very heart of God. We get a chance to see his attitude towards all of us, his attitude towards mankind. And here's why it's important to understand God's attitude, because just like us, attitudes drive actions. That's always how it works with us. And so when God tells us what his attitude is for us, then he shows us all through history and all through the scriptures, all of his actions towards mankind are flowing from his attitude. So we're going to look at that in these parables today, and here's what we're going to figure out. God's loving attitude toward us, when we respond with the right attitude towards him, it's an opportunity for us to have a life of abundant joy a life of intimate communion and fellowship with the God of the universe. And that has great meaning and great value and great significance eternally. Okay, so open your Bibles to Luke 15, and we'll start. Jesus is telling stories. We call these stories parables. Um, this was a frequent teaching tool of Jesus. He would talk, he would tell stories that were situations and terms that were so common, everyday circumstances that everyone would be able to understand. But a parable also had a deeper meaning. It had a spiritual truth and a spiritual meaning. And Jesus would use this as a teaching tool because those who really had discerning hearts, those who were really interested in knowing truth, they would find the deeper meaning in the parables. So read with me Luke 15. We're going to start and we're going to hear the first of these two parables. It says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? 
And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and he says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Then for the female audience, he tells another parable. Suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and she loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Okay, right away we see a theme that is repeated over and over again in the Gospels, and it's this theme, this activity of Jesus. He's hanging out with sinners. He's visiting with sinners. He's eating with sinners. He's teaching sinners. We saw it last week when he called Levi to be one of his followers, and Levi throws a party, and the crowd mutters, why is he partying with sinners? Jesus does this over and over and over again, and he does it because of an attitude that's driving him. The interesting thing is every time Jesus does it, the crowd responds the same way. They respond with muttering. Now, we might think of muttering as this kind of thing, but actually the word that's used there is a word that describes something much more violent, much more aggressive. It's a loud, shouting, and antagonistic response, okay? So when Jesus hangs out with sinners, the people, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they mutter, and Jesus hears them, and right away, he understands they're not upset about his actions. They're upset about the attitude that might be driving the actions. And that's really the question they're asking. So Jesus tells these parables to reveal the attitude in his heart. In each of the parables, you know, he begins it with this statement, suppose one of you, suppose one of you has a lost sheep or a lost coin. He's basically saying, what would you do? Put yourself in this circumstance and see what you would do for the shepherd, the sheep. That's part of his income, so it has value to him. For the woman, losing a coin was kind of like losing a, an extravagant piece of jewelry, maybe something with sentimental value. Okay, so when he says, suppose one of you, you put yourself in that circumstance and you immediately recognize, ah, that stuff is valuable. We value our stuff and we go looking for it when it's gone. And if it takes a long time, if it's really valuable, we're going to search a long time diligently until it's found. And that's exactly what he's describing here. So the human response when that valuable item is found, it's rejoicing. And it's big rejoicing. It's not this private, personal, introspective rejoicing. It's rejoicing that can't be contained, that you call your friends and your neighbors in and share it with them. It's a little bit like the rejoicing we do here at Praise Time. Okay, so Jesus has spoken in terms that they can all understand, and they understand it because they all value their stuff. When stuff gets lost, if we value it, we go searching for it. All right, now he adds the spiritual meaning. He uses the exact same words in each of these stories, and at the end he says, in the same way. In the same way you rejoice over your found stuff, there's rejoicing in heaven. There's rejoicing publicly in the presence of the angels when one sinner repents. So here's the message here. For those who just have a worldly understanding, humans value their stuff. But for those who want to understand truth, here's what they're hearing. God values sinners. God values sinners. That's the message here. 
And Jesus values sinners, and he hangs out with them because Jesus came to represent the very heart of God. If Jesus is the Son of God, then his heart attitudes will be exactly the same as God. God values the sinner. Look at your verse sheet on Psalm 133, verse 5. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. This is God's attitude toward sinners. It's God's attitude toward you and me. And it makes all the difference in our lives. So Jesus, we see he's both the Lord who sits enthroned on high and he leaves the splendor of heaven to come down here and live in the ash heap with us. And he does it because his attitude is one, he loves sinners, he values sinners, he lives to be their savior. That's what's always driving him. And we'll see that all through his ministry here on the earth. Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, so that's God's beautiful attitude, and he wants us to know it, and it goes beyond that. It's not just that he's out here searching for these sinners who he values, but when he finds them, when he restores them into this kind of communion, intimate relationship with him, it's all rejoicing in heaven. And I think we have to stop and try and imagine this for a moment. The God of the universe who created everything is paying attention to every single sinner, and when every single sinner turns to God and enters a relationship with him, the God who owns and created everything stops and rejoices. What kind of value does he place on us? What kind of value does he place on this intimate relationship he wants with us? For me, it's so hard to imagine, but I keep thinking, God must want me to imagine it. Why else would he write these stories? Why else would he show us over and over and over again what his heart attitude is towards us? He wants us to know it, and he wants us to imagine it. So that's what we see in those parables. Now we're going to see the third in the series of these parables. This is the parable called the parable of the lost son, or perhaps you've heard it called the parable of the prodigal son. You know, that's a term that the whole culture has taken, and people who are even outside of the church understand what it means when you talk about a prodigal son. So you've probably heard this story um, maybe your whole life. Here's the end interesting thing. It's another lost thing, just like the sheep and the coin, but it's not an inanimate object. It's a person who behaved badly and was sinful and got themselves lost. It's a person who the world would say, well, they deserve exactly what they got. But God would have a different attitude, and Jesus would have a different attitude. Before we read that parable, I want to talk to you a little bit about a different idea um, that's kind of being expressed here. On your verse sheet, back in Luke 4, in verse 43, Jesus declares, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also. That is why I was sent. Over and over again in the, in the Gospels, we're going to hear Jesus expressing this desire to preach the kingdom of God. He'll say, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent so you can enter the kingdom of God. And it's, there's not really, I've done a study on it, there's not one single verse that you can turn to that will totally explain to you what that concept of the kingdom of God means. It's a little bit complicated, but if you look at all the verses together, you can see um, it's a very consistent theme. And so I want us to talk about it. We think of kingdom, for me, in our day and time, that makes me think of England and a castle and, you know, a royal king or queen and a land and people who are subject to that king. But that's not the kind of kingdom Jesus is talking about here. We just learned last week, he tells the people, I'm doing something new. 
I'm doing something new, and it's not the kind of kingdom you're thinking of. So a lot of theologians will describe the kingdom of God this way. They'll say it's the totality of God's reign, his rule, and his sovereignty. That's a little hard to understand, so I found an easier description. This one theologian said it's God's people in God's place under God's rule. It's us. It's us. When we live this communion life with God, we are living in the kingdom of God. And that's a great description. And Jesus says that's why he came. That's what he came to bring into the world. So the big idea of the kingdom of God, it's kind of got a distant future reality and it's got a present day reality. God tells us he's moving all of history forward to the place where he's going to bring a new heaven and a new earth. And we're all going to live in perfect communion with him, no longer marred and scarred by sin and its consequences. And that's a future day, but it will be physical, it will be visible, and it will be real. But then he also tells us there's a present reality to the kingdom of God. When Jesus talks about repent, the kingdom of God is near, enter the kingdom of God, he is speaking in the present tense. He's saying there's this aspect of the kingdom of God that is available to you now. It's not necessarily physical, visible, but it's every bit as real. What God is offering through Jesus is this idea that we can live in intimate communion with the God of the universe. When we recognize our sin, when we recognize Jesus' ability to cover our sin with his righteousness and we turn to him in faith, everything in our lives is transformed. Everything in our lives is changed because now we live with God and God flowing through us. And that's kingdom living right now. We're going to see this beautiful example when we look at this experience of these two brothers, the prodigal son and the older brother, and we're going to see them both with the same invitation to enter the kingdom of God. And their attitude, their response to that invitation, it makes all the difference in the world. Okay, so let's read the parable of the lost son, beginning in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. Okay, we're going to stop here and look at what just happened. This young man is asking for his inheritance now. If you paraphrased it, it sounds like a two-year-old toddler, give me mine. Give me mine and give it to me now. And at first we think, well, that's a pretty demanding, selfish request. That's the first way it impresses us. But if you really look at it and understand the culture, it's really a contemptuous request. And it's totally disrespectful to the father. That culture is not that different from ours today. A child received an inheritance, a son received an inheritance when the father died or when the father became incapable of managing his affairs. And none of those things have happened here. So this request is really this young man saying, I want to be done with you. I don't want to be in a relationship with you. I don't want to stay under your rule or under your authority. I want mine now. And it's such selfishness. It's total selfishness. But then the father, we see him acting with such grace. He gives. 
He gives what he had every right to hold on to. And immediately the son gathers it up and he leaves for a distant or a foreign country. Now as we read through these verses, I want you to pay attention to how that country is always described. It's a little different depending on your translation. But it will always say distant country, foreign country, another country, a faraway place. All right, This means it was a place where he was not at home. It was a place where he was an alien. It was a place where he was alone. And it was a place where he would live in isolation because he's separated from this communion with the Father. He's no longer living with the Father. And ladies, a selfish attitude on our part will always lead to isolation. Isolation from the Father and isolation from each other. So in this foreign place, the son's bad attitude plays out, and we see some bad actions following, some bad behavior. It's described as wild living here. Uh, some commentaries said that means wasteful, extravagant, immoral. One said utterly debauched. And it's so bad that people are talking about it. And the rumors are going all the way back home. They're hearing about how badly this young man is living. So that's bad. If we're going to read on in a minute, and here's what we're going to figure out. We're going to get the trifecta of bad. We're going to get bad attitude that leads you to bad actions. And then, uh-oh, some bad external circumstances come into play too. And things are just bad all of the way around. But I also thought this was the place where hope arrives. So beginning, let's pick up the story in verse 14. After the son had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. Here he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out, I will go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. All I could think in that was um, we tend to despair and be discouraged when a loved one is pursuing the distant country and struggling and winding up in that trifecta of bad. And the reality is sometimes God lets us get there because it's exactly the place we need to be where we will recognize our need for a Savior. So if you're chasing that distant country, if you've got loved ones who are out there pursuing those things, don't despair. God's going to let you wind up in a circumstance where you recognize that you need him. And that's exactly what we saw here. Things are so bad he's starving and he's helpless in that foreign land where he's isolated. It says no one was willing to give him anything. Perhaps that's because by worldly standards he didn't deserve anything there. The description of the job feeding pigs, okay, it's a Jewish audience, ladies, it's a Jewish audience. He couldn't have described anything worse. You know, I'm raising teenage sons. I've joked with some other moms who are raising teenage boys, and sometimes we, we describe really menial, terrible jobs our children will have if they don't go to school and work hard and make good grades. I think that's this example here. You might end up feeding the pigs somewhere. 
not good, not good. The pigs were defiled. You weren't allowed to eat them. You were defiled if you touched them. So this idea of his circumstances are so desperate that he's feeding the pigs and he doesn't even have food for himself. All the people in the audience would understand how bad those circumstances are. So it's in that broken, despairing, and starving place that the text tells us he comes to his senses. Isn't that beautiful? Great language. He comes to his senses. And if you'll read carefully, you'll see two key things that happen there. And what causes him to come to his senses? First, he recognizes my father's servants, they have food to spare. Food to spare. That means plenty. That means extra. It means abundance. That doesn't mean the servants have just the food that they've earned. It doesn't mean the servants have just enough food so they won't get hungry. It means there's extra. More than enough. More than sufficient. When he comes to his senses, that's what he realizes about the Father. And then he realizes something really important about himself. Apart from the Father, I am starving. I am starving and isolated here. He recognizes he has a profound need and he recognizes that his father is generous and gracious and could take care of him easily with leftovers. Okay, that's a real change in attitude for this young man that started out, give me mine now. And he thought if he just had his money and his independence and his freedom, he would have all that he needs. I think we really see demonstrated here something that is referred to as godly sorrow true sorrow that actually changes the direction of your life. Listen to 2 Corinthians 7, 10. It says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. I think it's godly sorrow because you see him immediately with a new attitude that's driving a new action. He says, I will go back to my father and I will confess my sins. Um, I think this is profound because there was another kind of sorrow that was an option for him. He could have looked around at his life starving and feeding the pigs and said, boy, I really regret those earlier choices. That really was the bad thing to do. Now I'll stay and starve here with the pigs. He doesn't do that. This is the kind of sorrow that changes his whole attitude and causes him to change the direction and course of his life. And that's an amazing tool in the hands of God. So he says, I will turn around. I will go back. Evidence of a new attitude, a new attitude that's changing his behavior. And this attitude is humble. It acknowledges his sin. You see there it says, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you to his father. And it's an attitude that's so humble it recognizes he has all that I need. It's not enough to simply know that God is sufficient, to know that he has all that we need. It's not enough if it's not that godly sorrow that changes the direction of our lives that causes us to get up and turn to a new direction. Okay? As I've talked to people about this, I've heard people say sometimes God's offer of salvation just seems too good to be true. It seems too good to be true that Jesus would die to pay for our sins and God would offer to welcome us into a relationship with him. And sometimes that's a barrier for people to actually come into a relationship with Christ. And I would answer, absolutely, it's too good to be true. Absolutely, it's a grace, it's a gift, and you could never, ever, ever earn it for yourselves. But I would disagree with the thought that it doesn't cost you anything. It does cost you something. It costs you self-will. It costs you independence. It costs you that arrogant, selfish attitude that says, I'm going to do it my way now. 
You have to be willing to turn away from that and to turn back to God and say, okay, I'm going to do this your way. And it truly is too good to be true. But that requires humility. And we'll see a humble attitude, a repentant attitude. That's what leads you into communion with God. That's what leads you into this relationship where you live your life abiding with the creator of the world. Okay, that's what we see this young man doing. Let's read about how his family responds to him. We're going to begin in verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. But meanwhile... Dun, dun, dun. This is the bad part of the story. The older brother who was working in the fields, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Well, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and he pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father says, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. All right, right away we see the father's loving, longing, gracious heart. He spots his son from far away. Here's what that means. He was looking. He was looking and watching and waiting and longing for his son to return. Since we know the Father in this story represents our Heavenly Father, we can recognize our Heavenly Father's attitude of longing for our salvation there too. And as soon as the Son confesses his sin, the Father cuts him short and interrupts him. He doesn't even get to the part where he says, let me be like one of your hired servants. The Father cuts him off and immediately demonstrates forgiveness, immediately demonstrates this restored relationship where they're in communion with each other again. Repentance always leads to forgiveness. That's a pattern we see in the scriptures, and it's always true. When we turn to God in repentance, his response is always forgiveness. So he immediately puts the son in a new position, and he gives him new clothes. And you'll notice these are not the clothes of a hired servant. He never saw his son as a hired servant. He puts him right back in the clothes of the heir a favored, beloved son, an heir to everything. The father's attitude to the son here is all mercy. Found this beautiful poetic language. This is by Matthew Henry. He describes it this way. His father saw him. There were eyes of mercy. He ran to meet him with legs of mercy. He put his arms round his neck, arms of mercy. He kissed him. There were kisses of mercy. He said to him with words of mercy, bring the best. There were deeds of of mercy, wonders of mercy, all mercy. What a great God of mercy He is. That's God's attitude toward us. 
It's all mercy all the time. And mercy is God giving us what we need. It's not God giving us what we deserve. It's him giving us what we need. And that's what we see in this beautiful parable. So whenever someone um, is restored into that right relationship with God and salvation happens, the response is always rejoicing. And it's big and it's grand and it's public. That's what we see here. Plans to kill the fattened calf and celebrate. It's going to be a feast. So once again, we see that idea welcoming sinners in, eating with sinners, celebrating, abiding, resting, remaining with sinners. We see it over and over and over here, but we see what the Pharisees don't. It's not about eating with sinners. It's about having a relationship. It's about having communion with sinners. And whenever that happens, someone mutters. Always someone mutters. When this older brother comes in, I thought if this were a stage play, you'd hear that voiceover. The role of the Pharisee is being played today by the older brother. That's exactly what he's doing here. It's very clear. He comes in muttering and complaining. He's angry. He refuses to enter the celebration. He presents this argument, this worthless young son of yours. He's not a brother of mine. He's a son of yours. He doesn't deserve this good treatment. He doesn't deserve it because his behavior has been bad. And then this son goes on to describe all the work he's done to earn his father's favor, to earn communion and a relationship with his father. He says, I've worked like a slave. I've done it all these years. I've obeyed all your commands. He's even out in the fields right now when all this is happening, probably working. And if we paraphrased his words here, it'd be the two-year-old who says, you never gave me mine. You never gave me mine. It's a bad attitude, and it's a bitter, bitter heart. We immediately see the attitude that drives his actions. He believes he can earn his father's favor. He believes he can earn the inheritance. He believes he will determine how much work is enough, and he thinks he's done it, and now he thinks the father is withholding what he deserves. It's total self-righteousness, and that's the attitude that apparently has been directing him most of his life, slaving away, working for the Father, working for what he thinks he deserves. When I read this, um, as I studied it, multiple times I get to this part, and it would just bring tears to my eyes, and I would think, I don't know if there's any more tragic story in the whole Gospels. Um, And the tragic thing to me here is that this son has lived right there with the Father, and he has always misunderstood his Father's heart. He has never understood the love and value that his father has given to him freely. And to me, that is tragic. He's never understood he didn't need to act like a slave, slaving away, because his father never saw him that way. All along, the father was right there, all along. And that's his answer to him. All along, every day, I've been right here. All I have is yours. Every day, I've offered you the chance to live like this with me. You didn't have to work for it. That's the father's answer, and the son never understood it. The father doesn't show any favoritism. He offers the same thing to the prodigal who's gone away and squandered that he offers to this older son who's been slaving away and following all the rules. But only one son takes him up on that offer. Only one. Self-righteousness stops that older brother. Self-righteousness in all of us, it leads to muttering, it leads to discontent, and it always leads to isolation. That's exactly what it did there for this brother. 
So Jesus is obviously referencing the Pharisees, the teachers of the law there, as he describes that older brother. But I think we can make some modern-day applications to that also. I think lots, lots of people can fit that description. Let's think about it. The Pharisees stayed in the place they were supposed to be, right there near the temple. And the older brother stays in the place he's supposed to be, right there near the father. The Pharisees learned all the rules, and they practiced all the laws. And that son does all the things right, too. Um, but instead, they misread the heart of the Father, and they expend all this energy and all this time trying to earn something that they never had to earn. It's a tremendous, tragic waste. Romans 10, they're talking about the Israelites here, and it says, They're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness that came from God and instead sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. When I think about the tragedy of that, I know there are people who hang out in the right place today. I know there are people who hang out here at the church with us. I know there are people who befriend the people of God. I know there are people who are attracted to the life of God that they see here. They learn to talk church language, and they learn to do church things. But doing is never the way to enter a relationship with God. It never worked as it's described to us in the Bible, it never works today. First, there must be that humble attitude, that humble attitude that says, I'm starving. Apart from the Father, I'm starving. I'm going to get up and turn back to him. All this work, all this energy, all this doing, God has never required that. He's a good Father, offering salvation to everyone, longing for everyone to return, eager to give you, to give you freely. And so I think about that, and I think how tragic when we miss that. How tragic. Because when a sinner turns around and stops striving and working and just rushes to the arms of the Father, you know what that sinner's going to find? I've been waiting. I've been waiting for you. I've been waiting for you all along, and you weren't a slave, and you didn't have to work for it, and you didn't have to earn for it. I'm waiting here to give it to you. And there will be joy when that happens. So I'm thinking if you're out there hanging out with the church in the right place, doing the right things, but you haven't had that moment of stopping and turning to the Father and saying, I'm starving, but with you there's plenty, then you're striving and you're acting like a slave and he never wanted you to act that way. And I hope you'll take that away as the only thing you remember from your time here today. God's heart for you does not see you as a slave. He sees you as a son and an heir, and he's ready to enter a relationship with you. Okay, we get one more story here. Um, this isn't a parable. It's a real story. We read the story of Zacchaeus in chapter 19, so go ahead and flip over there. And once more, this story is here to show us God's heart attitude of love and value for the sinner, God's heart attitude desiring to be in a relationship with every sinner, and that Attitude gets played out in the actions of Jesus here. All right, let's read this with me. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once 
and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this. All the people began to mutter. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now, I'm giving half my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times that amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham. Okay, it's just a beautiful conversion story. When you run all these stories together, those three parables and this story of Zacchaeus, you see an escalation. First, it's these objects that are lost. They didn't do anything to get themselves lost. Next, it's a young, immature man who has a rebellious period in his life, and he gets himself lost. And now we've got Zacchaeus, and we have reason to believe he's got a long history as a sinner, a long, long history as a sinner. It tells us he's a tax collector. We talked about this a little last week. That means he's working with the Roman government, and the Jewish people didn't like that. He's um, extracting very heavy taxes out of the people. Because he's a wealthy tax collector, that implies two things. One, it implies he was probably a chief tax collector. He was so good at it, there are others working for him, and he's helping them be good at their job. It also implies that he's following the standard practice of the day, which was tax collectors demanding more money than they actually owed in taxes, and tax collectors becoming very, very rich, extorting extra money from the people. So for both reasons, we can assume Zacchaeus was hated. He definitely was considered a sinner. We also have some historical records that tell us if you were a chief tax collector, you traveled around doing your job with armed guards and armed men with you, helping you get all this money from the people. And I think in modern-day terms, that sounds a little bit like organized crime, traveling around with your hired hitmen and your gunmen, taking advantage of the people. So that's who Zacchaeus was. He was a sinner. We know that for certain. But we see something else here. We see that he was a seeker. He was absolutely seeker, and he had a question on this day in Jericho. He wanted to see, who is this Jesus? Who is he? And what we find out is a seeking attitude. Ladies, that helps us truly see Jesus as he really is. Not our expectation of him, not our desire of him, but it's how we see who he is. And we've already been studying so many of the people miss Jesus because he doesn't meet their expectation. That's not what they thought he was coming in in the way he was coming. So Zacchaeus is a seeker. We also know he wants to see Jesus because Jesus' reputation has spread far and wide at this point. This is the very end of his time of ministry. They have already heard how he's fed the multitudes, how he's given the blind sight, how he's healed leopards, all these miraculous healings. And the biggest miracle of all was 15 miles away, just 15 miles away in Bethany. Jesus has called a dead man out of the tomb, okay? That's the Jesus he's heard about, and all of Jericho has heard about Jesus, and they want to know who he is. So Zacchaeus is going to figure out how to see him. He's a short man, and he can't see around the crowd. Personally, I can totally relate to that. Um, What he does seems very undignified and silly. He climbs a tree because he wants to see Jesus. And I just have this vision of him, this little man kind of dangling like a monkey out of the tree, but he was desperate to see Jesus. Jesus does two things. This is just one of the quickest, um, fastest uh, transformations we see in the scripture. Jesus looks at him and he calls him by name. And when Jesus calls you by name, here's what he's communicating. I know you. 
I know you. I know your heart. I know your job. I know your sins. I know how starved you are. I know you. That was a powerful thing for Jesus to do. He calls his name, and then in one quick sentence, he invites Zacchaeus to this. He invites Zacchaeus, live in an intimate relationship with me. Commune with the God of the universe. Know me. He says, I must stay at your house. Other translations don't use the word stay. They use that beautiful word abide. Abide. Abide with me. Rest with me. Draw strength from me. Abide with me is the offer Jesus makes to Zacchaeus the sinner. It's interesting, this is the only place in all of the Gospels where Jesus invites himself to be a guest. But we all know, because we see the spiritual meaning here, this was never about being a guest in Zacchaeus' house. This was about Jesus taking a place in Zacchaeus' heart forever. Zacchaeus wanted to know who Jesus was, and he wanted to see him. And what he saw was a Savior standing in front of him, calling him by name, opening his arms, saying, come into the kingdom. Come into a relationship with me. It's interesting, Jesus didn't say, go sign up at the synagogue and get on their roll and take some classes and start doing a bunch of things. He just said, abide with me, stay with me. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's about knowing the king, not about doing and slaving. It's always been about knowing the king. I came upon this fabulous quote um, that made me think of Zacchaeus. This is Dallas Willard. And he says, The combination of personal need and confidence in Jesus, this permits any person to blunder right into God's kingdom. It doesn't have to be eloquent or beautiful. It can be awkward and undignified like Zacchaeus hanging from a tree. We can blunder into a relationship with God when we're humble and we recognize our need for him. And as soon as that happens, what does the crowd do? Here they go, muttering again. It's always met with muttering. The same complaint, he's the guest of a sinner. Why would he do that? We know why, because we've heard God's attitude. We've seen God's attitude. He loves sinners. He values sinners. He sent Jesus to be the Savior for sinners. That's why he does it. We also see this beautiful attitude in Zacchaeus. It says he welcomed him gladly. It was immediate, just like we saw in Simon Peter last week. Immediately welcomed him gladly, immediately entered the kingdom, immediately was in a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thing. He had a total transformation. It shows you right away he calls him Lord. He answers that I must stay with you by calling Jesus Lord. And then he shows that he's a transformed person. He immediately says, I'm going to give money to the poor. I'm going to repay what I've stolen. The man who used to be this terrible sinner taking what wasn't his, now his life is united with the life of Christ. And now God's love is starting to flow out of him. It's not self-righteous behavior. It's not Zacchaeus trying to earn anything because Jesus says salvation has come. You're already there. That's what we see when he has this welcoming attitude that embraces Jesus. In these set of stories, three different times, we've heard this, this muttering, why does he welcome sinners? He's welcoming sinners. He's eating with sinners. Over and over and over again, that's what they say. And Jesus finally looks right at them and directly answers the question. Look back in Luke 19, the last verse, Luke 19:10. 
For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. This is the key verse for the entire book of Luke. Attitudes drive action. Okay? He's telling you, I came, my action is to seek and save what is lost because I love them and I value them and I want to live this life of tight communion with them. Jesus answers their question and he does it by showing them God's attitude and showing them how that attitude drives everything God does in the world. But he also shows them that our attitude matters. Our attitude makes all the difference in the way we respond to God. So I want us to take a minute and I want us to adjust our attitudes. I want us to examine our attitudes because it's real easy to look at this and think, I'm not a Pharisee, I'm not a tax collector, I walk with God, I have a good relationship with him. But I think there's some tendencies in here that we all have capacity for. So first let's look at our own attitudes. I want you to stop and I want you to think real carefully Have you had an experience of repentance? Have you had that true experience of recognizing, I'm starving, and God has everything where you're willing to turn and go to the Father? Have you had that experience? Are you here expending a bunch of energy, doing a lot of work, trying real hard to do this on your own? Because here's what God says. He didn't send Jesus in the world to condemn the world. He sent him in the world to save the world because he loves you and you don't earn that. You just have to be humble and you have to turn to him in repentance. It requires a humble attitude. So think through that. Have you had that moment? Then I also want you to think if you ever act like the older brother, stepping into that self-righteous Pharisee role, doing all the religious things instead of just abiding abiding with the Father and letting his life come out through you. And maybe you're thinking, hey, my salvation's secure. I live in a relationship with God. There's no place for self-righteousness in me. I think our human nature, there's always place for self-righteousness. I think there's a little Pharisee potential in all of us. And if I'm going to stand up here in front of you today, i got to be honest, and I'm going to tell you there's a little Pharisee in me. <laughs> That's just the truth, and I have to struggle with that and work through it. There's a part of me that wants to measure it and count it and line it all up, all my good works that I do for God, and here's why I do it, because then I'm controlling it, and then I can compare. I can compare my good works to yours. Okay, earlier we talked about that self-righteous attitude leads to isolation with God. That's absolutely what it does even when you're already in relationship with God. When I'm doing all this work and striving and trying to compare and control and feel good about my effort, that does nothing, nothing to create intimacy in my communion with God. And it doesn't do anything in my communion with you either, does it? It only leads to isolation, spiritual isolation and social isolation. So take a minute and figure out, ask God to show you, do you have a little Pharisee in you? I'm just going to be honest and tell you I do. Then I loved the attitudes that we saw in Zacchaeus. I loved that seeking attitude. I just loved it. He keeps asking who Jesus is, and ladies, Jesus will tell us. He will tell us if we ask, if we seek for him. So I'd say do whatever it takes to get rid of your own expectation of Jesus and let him show you who he is. And this is where he shows us, right here. Just what you're doing here when you're coming today to learn who Jesus is, to learn his heart attitude towards you. What we don't want to do is use our experiences and use our emotions and let them tell us who Jesus is. 
We want to do it just like Zacchaeus, and we want to go straight to Jesus and seek him and let him be found by us. And then the other great attitude we saw in him, welcome him gladly. Welcome him gladly into every part of your life, every single part. I think we all have these little compartments of our lives, and sometimes we welcome God into some. You can be king in my spiritual life. You can be king in my family life. No, but you can't have my social life, or you can't have my business life or my financial life. He wants to be welcomed gladly into all of them. He wants to abide with you there. He wants to feed you and care for you there so that everything you do is him coming out of you. It's this beautiful thing where he wants to take all these little kingdoms of your life and he wants to bundle them together and he wants to bring them all into his kingdom where you live with him. So those are some great attitudes that we can pursue that will bring us closer to God. I think what we saw in these parables Jesus shows the people the heart of God, and Jesus shows them God is always a friend of sinners, and I personally am very grateful. And what we see in these people is that how we respond, the attitude we come back to God with, that shows, uh, that shows God. Are we a friend of his? Are we a friend? So it's a great opportunity for us to just look at our attitudes and figure out which ones help us see God and welcome him gladly. Let me pray for you all. God, you tell us that we are your beloved and that we are loved with an everlasting love. And that is so hard to get our heads around that. But you tell us it over and over and over again. And you demonstrate it over and over again. And you demonstrate it fully by sending your son to condescend to live among us and to put himself on a cross and to die for us. We're grateful. We're grateful. We just appreciate your love for us so immensely. My prayer is that if anybody hasn't had that experience yet today, that your love would just be a crushing reality in their life and that they would have the moment when they turn and go back to the Father and experience immediate communion with you, Lord. Soften their hearts. Move them in that direction today. For those of us who've had that experience, don't let it get stale, Lord. Remind us of it. Let us keep seeing that. Let us keep seeking you. Let us continue to welcome you into every part of our lives because you are the king and you are good and you love us, Lord. Let our lives bring you glory and honor and praise. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.